I, I mentioned the, the olive bottle because there's a bottle of anointment, not olive oil, that comes into our story today in Mark chapter 14. And uh, in Mark chapter 14, I, I, I call this chapter, Break the Bottle. Break the bottle, serve the Lord extravagant. I told Pastor Evan earlier in the week that we were going to be talking about an extravagant service of worship, and he got excited about that. That, that was a theme he could get behind. And uh, in that extravagant service of worship, well, even then on the worship team, it was time to pull out all the stops. I mean, we had, we had the keys, and we had vocalists, we had strings, we had drums. We even had an accordion and a, what was that? A bassoon. Okay? Where else could you have gone on this Sunday morning and had, in the midst of everything else, an accordion and a bassoon? That's an extravagant service of worship, right? But that's not exactly what I was talking about. I was talking about a service of worship not in our gathering and singing together, but in how we give of ourselves. To, to give ourselves out of our own lives in extravagant service that honors and even shows something of the Lord. We have been in Mark's gospel wanting to know something about Jesus so that we could follow him to know and follow Jesus. Well, in Mark 14, actually there's a, a story first at the front of the chapter about one of his followers and his follower actually helps us to understand what it is that Jesus is doing for us. So we're going to use that example of the follower to show us something about Jesus and explain what he's doing in the rest of the chapter. So as we get into Mark chapter 14, I encourage you to open your Bibles there, Mark chapter 14. And as I read, there's a, there's a pattern here. It's called a chiasm. Now there are a few... There's a few Bible or language nerds in the group that just got excited because I said that. A chiasm comes from the Greek letter key, which looks like our English letter X. So think of an X. And the X, when you look at it, it marks a spot, right? You have these slants coming in that point to the middle. And chiasm is a structure whereby something at the beginning and something at the end point to a thing in the middle. They parallel. So the story starts with something that comes up again at the end of the story. And then there might be another detail that parallels something else at the end of the story. And those parallels continue in from the outward to the middle, pointing to something important in the center. And as, so as we go into this story, there is that kind of parallel. I pointed it out in the notes on the back of your, of your bulletin this morning if you want to follow along there. But as I read, I'm going to read through the first 11 verses, and then we'll, we'll point out those parallels, those chiasms, and what is the center that they point to. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's two days before Passover. It's two days before crucifixion. And the chief priests and the scribes were, were, were seeking to arrest him by stealth to kill him. For they had said, not during the feast, let there, unless there should be an uproar among the people. So they have got a problem. They can't go and arrest him publicly while he's with the crowds gathered around him teaching because the people are going to stand up for him. It's going to be a, it's going to be a mess. It'll be a riot. And, but it's hard for them, when, uh, off on the side, in a quiet moment, uh, out of the eye of the crowd, because Jesus has proven to be somebody that easily fades away into the crowds or into the, bab into, into, into the background when they've tried to arrest him before. 
So they have a problem on their hands. They're seeking for an opportunity to arrest him. In verse 3, while he was at Bethany, Bethany is a little, it was a small town or village about two miles away from Jerusalem on the outskirts, on the approach toward Jerusalem from the east. While he was at Bethlehem in the house of Simon the leper, this is not a a big deal. They're gathered for dinner, but this is not somebody well-known. This is not a, a socialite house. This is the house of a leper. You couldn't think of a more insignificant place. As he was reclining at the table, a woman came. We're not told who she is. She's anonymous to us. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and she poured it over Jesus' head. She anoints his head with this oil. Now there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? What a waste. This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, nearly a year's average wage. That money, all that money, a year's wage, that could have been given to the poor. We could have done something better with that than just pouring it out on Jesus. They scolded her or they rebuked her harshly. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Don't use that as an excuse. But you will not always have me. The days are slipping away. The window of opportunity is closing. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. They promised to give him money. And he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Let's talk about those parallels. So in the, in, the, in the opening and in the closing couple of verses, the priests and the scribes are seeking an opportunity to arrest Jesus, and Judas is working with them to seek an opportunity to betray him. While that is going on in the background, you have uh, this scene opens up in a private home, and there's an unnamed woman. That's paralleled in verse 9 with everywhere in the world what she's done is going to be told. And she is not going to be unknown, but well-known. She's going to be celebrated. In the, in the, in the end of verse 3, she p- pours the ointment over his head. And Jesus interprets that in verse 8. She has anointed my body for burial. The response is some say, what a waste. What a waste. Jesus rather says concerning it in verse 8, what she has done what she could, or more literally, what she had, she did. What she had in her hands, that she has done. What a waste, they say. Now, who was it that was criticizing her? That's interesting. The others in the room apparently are the disciples. We read the parallel in the the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, and Judas is the one who starts to criticize. Judas criticizes her. He says it should have been sold and the money given to the poor because he was the one that kept the money bag, John says, and he used to steal out of it. So Judas isn't thinking of a better cause. 
Jesus is thinking, or, or rather, Judas is thinking of using that for himself instead. And Judas criticizes her, and then the others in the room pick up the chorus. Doesn't it happen that way? One person criticizes, one person is harsh, one person judges another, and others then carry on. Yeah, that's right. That, was, that wasn't a good thing to do. Yeah, that was kind of a waste. They shouldn't have done that. They should have done this. And now we have a whole chorus of judging, judges, and pretty soon the whole panel has, has um, condemned in as, as a unanimous. It easily spreads. Criticism seems to be contagious. The very ones who should have applauded what this woman has done, that she has poured out this in worship on Jesus. The very ones, those closest to him, those who knew who he was, his own disciples, they're the ones to criticize her. There's to say, oh, what a waste. She has taken that valuable ointment and she's just wasted it on Jesus. Think about it. That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? And Jesus says she's done what she could. What she had, she did. You know, oftentimes I think about, well, if I had, then I would. You ever play that game? If I won the lottery, you know, what would I do? Or if I suddenly received a certain amount of wealth, this is the wonderful things that I would do with it. And you know what? God doesn't care. God doesn't care what I think I would do with what I don't have. Rather, Jesus says concerning her, what she had, she did. You know, the Lord never asks you to do what you don't have. The Lord asks you to use what we do have. To be good stewards, as Peter says, of the manifold, the varying different grace of God that is in us. That which he has put in us. What do you do with what you've been given? That's the question. It's not what could I do if I had. It's what do I do with what I have? What she had, she did. You know, it's been said, as the crowd of disciples around criticize this woman, it's been said that the world never has a problem with religion in moderation. If you will just, you know, take it easy, just don't get carried away with this whole faith and following Jesus thing. You know, just, yeah, go to church if that's important to you, but don't get carried away. You know, don't throw your life into this thing. You know, there's much more important things going on that you need to give attention to. The world will never have a problem with religion in moderation. But you give yourself away. You pour out your life in following Jesus, and there will be critics, I can promise you. They said it should have been given to the poor. There's something else that would have been better to do. And okay, if, if, if that's more important to do, if that's what, you, what should have been done, then do it, Jesus says. You know, the poor you always have. You can do for them whatever you want, whenever you want to. We live as broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior, and there will always be opportunity to help people in need. There will, always be, there will always be need. We will never win a war on poverty. The poor, Jesus says, you will have with you always. There'll be an opportunity to do something there. But he says, me, you don't always have. The window is closing. The window is closing. What the Lord puts on your heart to do, you can say, yeah, maybe I will. Maybe someday. You don't know if you'll have someday. Right now we have today. 
What will you do with what you have in terms of time, talent, testimony, and treasure? What will you do with what you have, what God has put in you today? I was, I was talking with one of our dear sisters, older woman here in the church yesterday, and she made a comment that she was so glad for what the Lord had, how the Lord had made her children, what he had grown them into. Yeah, what has he grown you into? What has he given you? And what will we do with what we've been given? They shamingly rebuke her in the end of verse 5. Jesus defends and honors this beautiful thing that she has done. At the end of verse 6. And then in the middle of verse 6, at the beginning of verse 6, in the middle without maybe necessarily another parallel, Jesus says to them, leave her alone. He answers the criticism. Jesus is the one to defend her. Leave her alone. He says, why do you trouble her? And we miss something there in the English. There's an emphatic construction there that take the her and move it up front. Why her do you trouble? Why her do you criticize? Of all the people that you could criticize, why would you criticize her? The one that, who has done what she could with that which she had. The one that has taken that thing of, of, of value that she had and has poured it out in extravagant service of worship. And Jesus himself gives the true meaning of it. You see, Jesus, he says, she has anointed, she thinks she's anointed his head in honor. That's a, that's a way that you honor somebody. And you can say, well, she's recognizing him as the king and as our, as our high priest. Well, maybe, maybe there's some theology. Maybe she is simply honoring him as a guest in the home in a way that nobody else has done. Remember, Jesus at another time tells, tells the um, 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 one of the Pharisees who were hosting him, that you gave me no kiss of greeting, you, no anointing for my head. It was a way to honor a guest. Maybe she is just honoring Jesus, but she's doing it extravagantly. And Jesus reinterprets this. This is the last time he's going to be anointed with oil, uh, ointment by anybody before his death. It has... A deeper meaning, maybe more than she realizes, more than anybody else in the room realizes. And Jesus pronounces that reward, the long reach of what she has done. You know, when we are willing to pour out ourselves in an extravagant service of worship, what we see in the story is that Jesus himself will vindicate you. Others may criticize. Others may find fault. Others may say, what a waste. But Jesus himself will vindicate you. He will stand for you. Jesus himself will give the true measure of what you do. How far it will reach, farther than you realize. And Jesus himself will reward you accordingly. Do you believe that? Can we really count that the Lord will really do it? That it will be worth it all when we see Jesus? The story tells us we can. Remember last week when I told you that, that I love to go to that one street, that street of the stones thrown down? Because there you can see the words of Jesus were actually fulfilled. There you see the stones still, just as Jesus said. Not one of these stones will be left on top of another. They will all be thrown down. And some of those stones are still there for us to see. What he says is true. It happens just as he says. And here, he says of this woman... 
wherever the gospel is preached, wherever in the world the gospel is proclaimed, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. How do you know that it will be worth it? How do you know that Jesus will reward your extravagant service of worship? Folks, we're a long way from Bethany. We're a long time from Bethany. It's 2,000 years later almost. We are a long way from Bethany. You can't get much further around the world than where we are from where Bethany is on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And yet, what are we talking about this morning? Fulfilling Jesus' words that wherever the gospel has been proclaimed, what this woman has done will be told. We are honoring her again. We're remembering her again, and her sacrifice is something that, that edifies, strengthens, an example that builds up the church in following Jesus. And just as Jesus said, we're still talking about it. You see it? Mark passes it on to the church in Rome and all the way to us. We're a long way from Bethany. But what Jesus says will always be true, no matter what critics stand in the way. We can give ourselves an extravagant service of worship. Jesus will provide the true measure of its worth. He will reward accordingly. You know, I thought about that. She did what she could. She did what she had. You can give to the poor at any time, but me, you don't always have, Jesus says. There's a window of opportunity. And I, and I thought about um, when we were in the Air Force a few lifetimes ago. I was, I was nine years in the Air Force, and the Lord called us out of the Air Force to serve him in missions. And I told my boss I was, I was going to be leaving. And, and he said, Bob, you know, you like the Air Force. The Air Force likes you. You stick around another 11 years, you'll be a chief in 20 years, you could retire at 20 years, and then you'd have your retirement to go do your mission work. I said, you know, boss, I'd love to do that. But the Lord's calling me now. I don't know if he will be calling me 10 years from now. We dare not wait, we dare not presume, because we might actually create a callousness, a hardening within our own heart that makes it easier still for us to not follow what it is the Lord calls us to do. If you practice no too much, you'll get real good at it. That's the danger. We have the opportunity as a church set before us in the next couple of years, we'll have a, we have hopefully a capital campaign to replace the education building with, with new space, new facility added on as part of this building. And this is something we haven't done as a church since the 70s, replaced and put in, done new building together. It's not, it's not something that other, every generation gets to do, to put in place something that's going to be there to serve the Lord. We stand still as later generations benefiting from what others built for us. And we'll have the chance. Now, there's a window of opportunity for that. It's not something that every generation gets to do. It's not something that we'll have unlimited time opportunity to do. There's a window of opportunity I think of the example of one of the young families in our church, Josh and Danielle, gathering up their little ones, and they're going to a place far away, a, a, a land that will be difficult to live in. 
a land that will be different, difficult for them to carry out the ministry God has given them, and yet they go. And some people say, that's crazy. Man, that's a waste of your talents. That's a waste of your abilities. You're going to be throwing your life away in the, in the middle of nowhere, probably having very little impact, some would say. And Jesus says that he himself will vindicate their extravagant service of worship, that he is the one to give the true measure of his worth. He knows how far that's going to reach. We have no idea. And he will reward them. You know, I just heard the story last week of another person in our congregation, Andrea Stout. I'm going to ask Andrea to come on up. Andrea Stout just found out just recently that what she had was what was needed. And the question, at a very kind of short notice, came to Andrea, what should we, what would she do with what she had? And so I said, man, that is a great story. That so fits with Matthew, Mark 14. Would you, would you share that with us? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm Andrea Stout. Some of you might remember uh, a year ago, I was here heading off to Indonesia, having just come back from Hong Kong. Uh, so I'm a university professor, um, usually overseas, and with COVID, uh, things have been kind of shutting down or teaching remotely, so I've been bouncing around, and this summer I was still teaching for Corbin University, based out of Salem Online, and I got an email uh, about six weeks ago from a former organization that I worked for called the English Language Institute of China, I was in China with them, and uh, now they go by Pinnacle Teaching Solutions, and they needed a professor in... Morocco, Morocco is changing their university system from a three-year European system for their bachelor's degree to a four-year American system, um, which then includes more liberal arts and humanities classes. And they're changing from French instruction to English instruction. So they said, we need PhDs in liberal arts or humanities that speak English. Do you know anyone? Kind of reading the email, thinking, yeah, yeah, that's me, okay. So, uh, Let's so see, said, you do speak English. <laughs> I do speak English. You do have a PhD. I do have a PhD. Yeah, in, okay. in, in English creative writing. Yep, yep, literature, there. writing, and, and film. So, uh, so they said, well, you're the one we need. So I said, well, what I have, I'll give. So I'm heading over, uh, leave on Tuesday for Fez, Morocco. I'll be at a university called Europe, European Mediterranean University of Fez. Uh, it's about 2,000 students. Um, it's a research university as well, so I'm excited for that. Should have some good opportunities, about 150 faculty. So I'm off on Tuesday. <laughs> Hopefully can teach in person. So we're getting a lot of experience sending, sending people away, but let's, let's pray for Andrea. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Andrea. We thank you, Lord, for her willingness, Lord, to, to step into, again, what is, a, what is a location that for her as a single woman will be a difficult place to serve. There will be challenges there. This is something that some perhaps would not understand, that others could discern and judge for themselves that there's something better that she should do. But, Father, I thank you that she trusts you and follows you. And, Father, we pray that you would give her much fruit there. Lord, we would pray that that fruit would endure all the way into eternity. Father, we, we pray that your blessing would be upon her, that your protection would be around her, and that, Father, that um, through who you have made her to be, Lord, that you would use her as your light to um, bear witness and to bring fruit where you take her. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's exciting. You know, the, what Jesus says about this sacrifice, 
He, he, what they said, it's a waste. Oh, why would you do that? Jesus said, she has done a beautiful thing. She has anointed my body for burial. You know, I suspect, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that this woman of Mark 14 was not one of those who's at the tomb after the resurrection. She's not there waiting, expecting that he's still going to be buried and he still needs to be anointed because she has done so beforehand. She's already anointed his body for burial. So like examples around us, we, we look to the low ends, we think of Andrea stepping out again, not knowing exactly what's before her, but knowing from past experience and his promise she can trust the Lord there. Go ahead. Break the bottle. Break that bottle. You know, that kind of alabaster bottle, when you break that open, you don't put the cork back in. This is a sealed bottle that you break the actual alabaster itself to break the bottle open, and it is poured out. Nothing reserved. Nothing held back. Go ahead and break the bottle. Pour yourself out in extravagant service of worship. Even though others won't understand, even though others might criticize, Jesus himself will uphold you. Jesus himself will give the true measure of its worth. Jesus himself will reward you extravagantly. That woman's sacrifice, as I said, oftentimes we see what Jesus does and we follow, follow him. We follow that example. But this part, of the, this part of the story is told up front, and it makes sense of the rest of the chapter. Jesus is doing like this. What we do is following Jesus and what he has done on a much bigger and grander scale that opens it up, that enables by his grace us to follow him and do something similar. And so her, her sacrifice portrays that. What do I mean? Well, Jesus... Jesus is sovereignly, intentionally. Jesus is not a victim of circumstances. It is not that the politics have gotten so crazy and carried away in Jerusalem that there's no way out, so to his death he goes. No, he is fully sovereign in this all the way through. He predicts where it is and how they're going to find the place for the Passover meal, how they're going to celebrate that. That funny story about a man who's carrying water and follow him and tell him the master needs the room, and all of that works out just as Jesus had said. That he predicts ahead of time the, the betrayal by Jesus. He predicts the scattering of the disciples. He predicts the denial of Peter, exactly how it plays out, even the, cowing, the, 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 the crowing of the, of the rooster. In verse 21, there's the balance of God's sovereignty. This is God's plan moving forward, and yet there's an individual responsibility in it. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written... These are not circumstances that are just carried away. It has been written. God is sovereignly in charge here. Three times we find it is written here in verse 27 and further on according to the scriptures in verse 49. But in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. And yet there's responsibility Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better for him if he had never even been born. There's a responsibility that we bear. There's a responsibility that Judas bears in what role will we participate in God's purposes and God's plan. But Jesus, as the Son, as the servant of God, as the Son of Man, Jesus himself is laying out for us the example of 
giving himself to the Father's will in the Father's purposes. He himself will pray, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus upholds those who fail. His disciples around him. His disciples are going to scatter. They say, no, 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 not us. We're going to be there for you. No, they're not. Peter says, no matter what these other blokes do, I would never deny you. I will never run away. I am with you to the death. And before the rooster crows three times, Peter himself has denied him three times. And yet, Jesus says, the sheep will be scattered, as it is written, but I will go before you to Galilee after I raise, that he will gather those who have scattered. He himself will gather him again, even Peter. Jesus will uphold those who have failed. Even Peter, he, in his resurrection, he'll say, go tell Peter and my brothers. He appears to Peter, then he appears to the twelve. He prays for them. He urges them to be watchful and pray. And I don't think when he tells them to watch and pray, I don't think he's telling them to pray for themselves. I think he's telling them to watch and pray that they don't enter into temptation, that they are going to be tempted to fall away. And he's urging them to be alert, to be awake, to remember what he said, and to live in light of it, to step into the reality of what he has said, to watch and to pray to watch and pray that they also would follow him and not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus himself understands the true measure of his sacrifice. It's in this chapter that he gives us the Lord's table as a remembrance. In this chapter, he gathers his disciples around and they have that Passover meal. And there he says, this bread is my body given for you. This, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He takes that Passover, which at, coming out of Egypt at Passover, they gather around Mount Sinai, they enter into covenant with Moses. And now, now again around a Passover lamb, they enter into, Jesus inaugurates a new covenant that by his blood, in his death for them, they will be restored, reconciled back to God, in right relationship with God so that the spirit of the living God can actually dwell with them. And they'll already begin to taste, already begin to experience the restored relationship of humanity with God again. That Jesus understands the true measure of his own sacrifice. And placing the explanation of that sacrifice, the Lord's table, in the midst of these predictions about the betrayal and the falling away and even the denial of Peter, there's something there for us as well. One author that I read this week put it this way. In placing the Lord's Supper between the betrayal and defection of the disciples, Mark vividly conveys that the many for whom Jesus pours out his life, his life poured out for many, includes his own companions around the table. The sin that necessitates the sending of the Son of God is not someone else's sin. The sin that necessitates the, the sending of the Son of God even to death for us is not the sin of the Emperor Caligula, not even Roman to the church in Rome, not even the legions of tyrants ever since, but the sin of the tenants of his own vineyard. It is the sin of his own disciples, of Peter and James, of you and of me. 
The essential evil in the world and the essential atonement for the evil of the world are both present at the table in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is there, and his disciples who so desperately need him are there, and we are there with them. He does this also for us. The essential evil in the world, the essential atonement for the evil of the world are present at the table of the Lord's Supper wherever and whenever it is celebrated. Finally, Jesus trusts the Father to vindicate him. And so we can follow in that same trust and confidence. You know, they're at the trial. They're, they're in the high priest's house and, and, um, or Annas' house. And they're... they're um, they're trying to put together false witnesses, and the witnesses can't agree. They can't, once they've arrested him, they still can't follow through with the conviction. They can't come up with the witnesses, and so they put it back on Jesus. If we're going to convict you, you're going to have to do it. And so they press him, and they say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. They dare him to say it out loud so they can convict him for what is true. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And he says to them, I am. And that must have echoed off the walls. Those were the words that the Lord himself said to Moses when Moses said, who do I say has sent me to them? And the Lord tells Moses, tell them I am that I am has sent me. Every I am statement in the Gospel of John echoes that episode. That the God who is the only uncaused cause in all the universe is the one who sent Moses, is the one who has now come in flesh to be with us. And Jesus says, I am. And not only that, he says, but you are going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You're going to see him seated right next to the Father, even as the Lord himself says in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He says, not only that, you are going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory. He reminds them, or he says to them what he told his disciples about his coming in the last chapter. They're going to see it too. Not only can you convict me today for what I say to you in truth, that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, but you're going to see me seated at the Father's right hand. You're going to see me coming in clouds of glory from heaven and establishing my kingdom. Jesus trusts his Father for that. He trusts his father when he lays down his life in death that his father will raise him up. He trusts his father that when he lays down his life in death and they said, ha, he said he would establish this kingdom. He said he would rebuild the temple in three days. So he will. That his father, as he prays to God, not my will, but thy will be done. God will vindicate him. God will establish the true measure of his sacrifice for us and God will reward his son accordingly. And so he will do for those who follow him. Go ahead. Break the bottle. Pour out yourself in whatever, whatever extravagant service of worship. What will you do with what you have? Pour out yourself in extravagant service of worship, knowing it will be worth it all. That the Lord himself will. You don't know, what difference could I make? 
leave that with Jesus. Let him be the one to determine what difference he'll make in you and through you. And trust that he himself will reward you extravagantly. Let's pray. Father, would you indeed make us willing? Father, we are weak. And yet perhaps our greatest weakness is that we are not willing. So Lord, would you work within our heart? Your word says that, that you are working both to will and to do of your good pleasure that you work in us to that. So, Father, would you do it? Even this morning, that which we are hesitant for, that which we seek to hold back, we reserve, maybe in another way, maybe at another time. But, God, would you give us the courage to trust you? Would you, Lord, give us the faith to be willing? that we would genuinely not merely say, we would genuinely pray, but, Father, we would also step into, we would live, not my will, but thy will be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.